Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Data Site One from Merrill Corporation, the market-leading due diligence app for the entire M&A lifecycle, helping companies worldwide close more deals faster. To learn more and sign up for a free demo, go to merrillcorp.com/fool. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined as always by Rob Brokamp. What? I don't know. I tra- Apparently, I haven't tried that one yet. Got a little reaction out of you. You don't like Rob, huh? I, I can't think of a single person who's ever called me Rob. Maybe one guy at the seminary back in whenever that was, 1987. I got a whole list. We're he's, just going to go through not, them all. He's not of with them. us anymore. Oh. Just kidding. Uh, in this week's episode, <laughs> it's the July mailbag. With the help of Motley Fool Wealth Management planner Ross Anderson, we're going to answer your questions about dividends and SEPs and simples and how to choose a financial planner. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Hey, Ross. Hey, how's it going? I'm good. Thanks for coming back. Thank you for having me. Man, you just keep coming back. That's and true. boy, do we appreciate it. We most certainly do. So, Ross is a planner with Motley Fool Wealth Management, a sister company of the Motley Fool. And he has some very strong feelings on reindeer that we learned just before <laughs> kicking off the show. It's true. They're delicious. <laughs> So with that, I think you want financial advice from that man. Shall we get into it? Sure, let's do it. Okay. First question comes from Joseph. I doubt the common wisdom of holding bonds. The logic seems to be that one, bonds provide steady income, and two, their value moves as a counterweight to the stock market. The net result is like a balancing seesaw of sorts, where your portfolio would be less volatile than not having bonds. However, I think dividend aristocrats or foolish dividend-focused companies can better serve an income stream in retirement and replace that portion previously dedicated to bonds. Because one, they are more likely to increase your income stream, and two, increase your portfolio value over time. What do you think? Well, Joseph, by mentioning volatility, you really hit on the primary reason to own bonds, especially for retirees. But I would say there's another word that's a close cousin, and that is predictability. Right? If you buy a five-year bond that pays 3%, you know exactly how much you're going to get each and every year and how much it'll be worth in five years. Bond funds, there's a little less predictability, but still really stable. Consider that since 1926, the worst year for the bond market was in 1994. That drop was a whopping 5%. So That's what people appreciate about that. Compare that, of course, to the stock market, where it can drop 30% in any given year. You don't know when it's going to happen. It doesn't happen that often, but we've seen greater declines of 50% or more twice this century. So, it does happen. That said, if you are willing to stick it out, you can stand that volatility. There's a lot of reasons to consider dividend-paying stocks, especially higher-quality ones, as an alternative to bonds. Uh, While the stock market's prices will go up and down, the dividends are pretty consistent. When you look at the dividends paid by the S&P 500 since the S&P 500 began in 1958, there have only been two years when you've seen significant declines. And that was one year, 1959, a decline of 12% in the dividends. And then in 2009, when they declined more than 20%. And in between those, there was only six years where they declined just a little. So, as long as you can kind of ignore the price volatility, relying on the dividends is an attractive way to create income because not only are they reliable, they tend to grow faster than the rate of inflation by about 1% over the long term. Plus, as we'll talk about a little later, qualified dividends have a uh, favorable tax rate. The only part of me, and here's the awfulizer, right? Here we go. Here we go. Awfulize it. Awfulize it. Right. We're always basing this on history, and there are times when 
the future looks different, sometimes in good ways, sometimes in bad ways. So I was thinking, if we were having this discussion in 2007, and I would have talked about the historical drops in the dividends paid by the S&P 500, I would say, the worst was 12%. They've never done worse than that. And then 2009 comes along, and it's more than 20%. So it is possible that the future will look worse. It is possible that we'll go through another stock market decline that looks more like maybe the Great Depression than what we saw so far this century. I don't think it's likely, but I think for that reason, most people should at least have a few years of the money they need like in their retirement in the next three to five years, that money out of the stock market. But with the rest of it, if they want to go all stocks, that's fine. And by the way, he mentioned the dividend aristocrats, just so everyone knows what those are. Those are companies in the S&P 500 that have increased their dividends for 25 consecutive years, or at least paid them for 25 consecutive I think it's increased them, maintain them or increase them. So those are high-quality companies. And you can buy those companies in ETF form if you just want a really diversified, easy-to-purchase way of getting high-quality dividend payers. The only thing I would add that I think is interesting here is that if you're going to live off the dividends, the likelihood is that you're underspending what you could be. Um, and, and that your portfolio is going to continue to grow, and that's a great thing. Um, you know, I'm looking at the Vanguard High Dividend Yield ETF because it was a ticker I knew off the top of my head. Uh, it's yielding about 3.3%. So if you can live off 3% of your portfolio annually, that's a very safe way to do it. And you're right, uh, you're likely to see the portfolio continue to increase, um, and that that should be a fairly stable payout. Um, but it's going to mean that your portfolio keeps growing, and I'm not sure that most of our goals, if we're retirement-seeking or retirement-focused investors, is to have a portfolio that keeps ballooning You know, as we charge into our 90s. I would rather live on a safe but uh, comfortable portion of that portfolio on an annual basis. So That's the other question there, is is that enough money for you, or could you be living a better lifestyle if you chose to treat the portfolio a little bit differently? All right, our next question comes from Dakota. What are your thoughts on margin investing, i.e., investing with borrowed money? The current interest rate for margin investing on Robinhood is 5% yearly. My thoughts are if my portfolio does better than 5%, for example, 7%, I would be making a full 7% on my actual dollars invested and 2% on my margin investing after the 5% interest is paid. Okay, so the uh, question here I think is a good one. It, it's one that I, I've pondered and thought of like, how could you structure this? I think there's a couple moving targets here that make this really, really difficult to execute. Um, the first of which is that when we say the stock market typically yields 7%, 9%, somewhere in that range, um, that is a very erratic 7 and 9%. In the last 39 years, if you look at the SP 500 and Look at how many times it has actually returned between that seven and nine percent. Even though we think of that as kind of the range and the average that it stays in, it's only been two years. Most of what we're seeing, big up years, big down years, flat years, right? So, so you you don't necessarily have that predictability to say, yeah, I'm going to put my money in, it'll earn seven, and I'll pay five. Like that's cool. If I could do that predictably, uh, I'd be very comfortable doing that, and everybody would do it. Um, you know, let's take a year like 2018. So, U.S. stock market lost 4.38 percent on the S&P. So, if you had made a $50,000 investment, you had taken it up to kind of your your typical margin limit at 50 percent. So, you buy $100,000 of the S&P with it. Through that year, you're going to pay 2,500 bucks in margin interest at 5 percent, and then you're going to lose. $4,380. So you've got a 14% loss on your capital that you actually invested relative to the market losing 4%. So you exacerbate those losses in an unpredictable market. So you got to be really tolerant of risk to be willing to take that on. 
The flip side of that is that if you had ridden that same train all the way through this first half of 2019, you would have made money. And that, and that's where this is kind of tough to tell people, no, you shouldn't consider it. But um, you want to be very, very careful using margin because it's going to cut both ways just as fast. And when you're losing that money, it's tough to hang on to that ride. The other thing I'll say is that margin interest is generally going to be a floating rate interest. It's not going to stay stable at 5%. We're in continued historically low interest rate times, but I would expect your cost to borrow there uh, is going to continue to rise in the future. Maybe not this year, because we're looking at Fed decreases in rates maybe this year, but um, long term, it's unlikely that you're going to be able to hang on at, at 5% forever. So um, I, I understand the math. I understand why you would be thinking that way, but I think it's much better to, to play a long game with the stock market and and not to invest more than uh, what you actually have to lose. I've never invested on margin, of course. Um, it would be more complicated than an investor that I am. Um, but would Robinhood ever, for example, be like, oh, you've lost too much. I'm sorry, we're closing this. Yes. Like, you yes. can't just ride it out and, and be like, I know this sucks. This is, some bad, this is a bad period. But I know in five years' time, the stock is really going to pay off. Yeah, so most of the time you're going to have an initial margin limit, which is normally 50%. Mm-hmm. So you could you could basically buy double what you have in there. So that's why I used an example of, of you could have 50000 and buy 100000 in stock. And then your uh, margin call limit, I believe, is normally at like 30%. Um, and if you get less than 30% equity in the account, they're going to start selling for you. And they're not just you're, you lock don't, in those losses. Yeah, no, you're you're not going to get to choose the day. It is yeah. going to be a violent experience because they're <laughs> gonna, they're they're going to protect their money more than yours. They right. they do not care if you lose money in that process. Um, and that does make them an evil company. All all brokers treat it that way. Um, but yes, so you you basically end up in a position where they could say we're going to sell your positions unless you add more money right now mm. because you you've lost too much of our money. Um, so yeah, it's it's a it's a very risky proposition. I would not recommend it unless you're very very comfortable um, with a lot of risk and you consider yourself a pretty sophisticated investor. All right, next question comes from Bernie. I am 50 and want to make sure my wife and I are doing everything we can for our financial health. Well, isn't that awesome? That is nice. Starting with listening to answers, right? That's not what he said, but I'm putting those words in his mouth. With it's implied. It's well, implied. I mean, that's on. what he's doing. Uh, he's keeping good company. With that yeah. said, who should we see? I assume a financial planner. If so, what credentials should they have? And what fees would be considered reasonable? Well, Bernie, I would start by asking yourself, what kind of help are you looking for? Are you looking for someone to just manage your investments? Or are you okay doing that on your own? Are you looking for someone to help you with maybe your retirement plan? Or are you looking for someone who wants to look at every aspect of your finances Look at the whole thing comprehensively. I would start there, knowing what you're looking for, and then look at the fee-only financial advisors that are in your area or elsewhere, if you're comfortable working with someone online or over the phone. And the places we often will say, you can go find a fee-only financial planner at the Garrett Planning Network, National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, or NAPFA, or our very own Motley Fool Wealth Management. You can go online, look at profiles, see who's offering what you're looking for. I would say choose maybe three, and then just meet with them. And most of those folks will offer a free meeting at Garrett. They call it the free Get Acquainted meeting. You talk about what you're looking for, they can tell you where they provide it, and then you can choose a fit. One thing you would need to look for is if you want someone to manage your money, many firms have minimums. Like, so you have to bring over maybe $250,000 or $500,000 of investments. So that's something to keep an eye on. 
Uh, the next question was how to get paid. Generally speaking, if you want them to manage your money, you're going to have to pay a percentage of your assets each year, the average these days being about 1%. And then if you do that, they will often throw in the financial planning services with that. If you just want the financial planning, usually pay by the hour or by the project. The hour these days is around $150 to $300 an hour. Project, $1,500 to $3,000. I've heard upwards of $5,000. What determines the price? Partially the experience of the financial planner, someone who's more experienced can charge more, but also the complexity of your plan. If you have businesses, if you have real estate, if you have a lot of assets scattered all over the place, you're probably going to end up paying more. When it comes to credentials, I'm a little biased, but I would say the gold standard for financial planning is the certified financial planner designation, which just so happens to be something that both Ross and I have, the CFP designation. We had to take six classes, pass them, take a test. The test I think it's well. seven classes now. Is it now? Yeah, it's gone. Okay. When yeah. you say it like that, though, it doesn't make it sound that hard. Right. Well, can you but, make well, it sound a little harder? Oh, we had to take seven whole classes and pass a test. Well, I don't know about your test, but when <laughs> I took the test, it had a fifty-five percent pass rate. There so, we go. That there makes we go. It Does it sound better. a little better? Thank yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a ten-hour national board exam, basically. At least when I did it, and they've shortened the the exam time now too, but. Um, no, it was a brutal experience. Right. When, if you were looking for investment expertise, you'll often see the CFA. That's the gold standard there. That's really tough. That's three tests, man. That's, that is a tough designation. The, neither of them really, I would say, are necessary, but what they indicate are is it's someone who's taken the time to learn as much as possible about their profession and take their profession very seriously. A couple of things I would point out, though, is to make sure when you find someone, do a little background check. So you can do a, look up something called broker check, and you can see if anyone's filed any complaints against someone. If someone's been in the business for a long time, they probably do have a few complaints. What you want to see is how it was resolved. And if they say they have a designation, make sure they actually have the designation. And when I say this, I bring up a recent Huffington Post article by Casey Bond, asked the question, who is Patricia Russell, CFP? She's mentioned in many articles, quoted through all, all over the internet. It turns out that after uh, Casey Bond looked into this, this person doesn't exist. Oh. Yes. Yeah, so not only is this person not a CFP practitioner, not even this person's real name. Person, If you look on her LinkedIn page, she said she went to MIT and Oxford. It's a pseudonym. It seems to me, based on what I read in the article, it's, basically, it's just a front to send people to this credit repair company. Huh. So wow. as you come across someone, do a background check and don't take everything they say for granted. The, the other place to look there is the SEC's website, which is um, it's advisorinfo.sec.gov, and it advisors with an ER. Uh, I think we still disagree in the industry on how to spell <laughs> advisor. Um, but that's the investment advisor public disclosure search because somebody like myself, we're a registered investment advisor. I'm not a broker. Um, I used to be. So I uh, used to have that brokerage license, but FINRA broker check would say I'm not registered, hmm. even though I'm still licensed through the SEC. I'm going to add here, by the way, if you go to the CFP website and look up my name on Find a Planner, you're not going to find my name because I don't offer any services. There's another site where you go to just do verify, and both Ross and I are in both of those. You're also in Find a Planner, by uh-huh. the way. Yeah. Yeah, oh, just saying, so you know, in case anyone checks up on that, that bro is a big liar. <laughs> Maybe you need to take fraud. another test. Yeah, yeah. Maybe. can't wait. <laughs> All right, next question comes from Chuck. I am 61 years old, retired, and receiving a pension from both the federal government and the military. My wife and I have significant amounts in IRAs, a 401k, and the federal thrift savings plan. 
We also own commercial real estate in San Francisco and an annuity that pays me until I turn 69 and a half, just in time for Social Security, which will be twice the amount of the annuity. The income from the pensions, real estate, and annuity is enough to make our living expenses. My question is, when determining how to allocate our portfolio between stocks and bonds, can we consider the pension as equivalent to a very safe bond or long-term annuity? If so, should we feel relatively safe allocating everything in our IRAs, TSP, 401k, and brokerage account to stocks? Chuck, I appreciate the question. I appreciate your your military service, and it sounds like you've put yourself and your family into a really great position. So, um, when you've got enough income coming in from uh, essentially guaranteed sources or, or sources that are are very stable, uh, you can really choose to treat the investments however you'd like. Now, I don't think of a pension identical to a bond in the sense that you can't rebalance out of it. Right. So if you if you thought of yourself as being the kind of guy that would have had a 60/40 portfolio or an even an 80/20 meaning 80% stocks 20% bonds that that pension isn't a replacement for the bond because if the market has a crash you can't sell the pension and buy more stocks. So you've lost the ability to rebalance, but in terms of the amount of risk and volatility that you can accept, it's really up to your own stomach acid because at this point it doesn't sound like you're relying on a distribution from the portfolio assets to support your lifestyle. So um, at that point, it really becomes a determination of how comfortable are you with risk. What are your goals in terms of uh, growth on those assets? And if you want to uh, be all in stocks, I-, I think you can afford to be. Yeah, I would say the same thing. Now, obviously, his situation is that he has a very secure pension, federal government, military. He's going to be fine. I would just say anyone else out there. You want to make sure that you have a safe pension before you go all in on that and have everything else in the stock market. Yeah, I, I, the, the way I think about it is we're going to look at your portfolio and say, how much do we need to take from the portfolio on an annual basis to support your lifestyle? Um, and so, for some people, if they don't have any pension assets and they're, it's purely Social Security, for example, we might be needing to take that four or five percent withdrawal rate. And so, the amount that they're going to need to protect. So that if there's a market downturn, it's going to be at least three to five years of that amount, right? So 25% bond allocation might mean that you can go through a four or five year drought in the stock market. Um, you know, the less that you're relying on the portfolio, the more you've got pension income kind of covering those needs. You can be a little bit more flexible with with how aggressive you get. Yeah, and Chuck, if you're looking for someone else who agrees with you, and this actually touches on Jonathan's question about bonds, uh, the Globe and Mail recently interviewed Harry Markowitz. Who is the Nobel Prize-winning father of uh, modern portfolio theory? He's almost 92 years old, and they asked him, "How are you investing these days?" And he said, "I own very few bonds because I got my teacher's pension, I've got my Social Security, and frankly, I have enough in the stock market so that even if it drops, I still have plenty of money." Um, so he has very little in bonds, and he's not going to be interested in bonds until they get to at least four percent. The other aspect I would add about that is that he's almost 92, and he's still working. He's still writing books. He's still consulting. He's still on the faculty at uh, UC San Diego. So that's a whole other aspect for him. He's got his situation taken care of. That's always my favorite, like Buffett fact, right? People want to invest like Warren Buffett, and I'm like, you realize he's like in his 80s and still working. That that's that's the first thing to growing your wealth by like a lot yes, from where that's it is, true. Yeah. is that you don't stop at 65. Yeah. All right. Next question comes from Brent. I know if you make zero to $38,600, your capital gains tax rate is 0%. Does that include your capital gains dividends? For example, I made 37000 last year, but received 3000 in dividends and capital gains. Because I'm now over 38600 will I owe tax on the dividends and gains? Additionally, is this income amount before or after deductions and credits? 
Let me clarify a few things here for you, Brian. So I'm sure you understand this, but sure everyone else understands it. When he's talking about these lower rates on dividends and capital gains, we're talking about qualified dividends. Generally, most people who hold on to a stock for more than 120 days, your dividends are going to be qualified, but just to make sure everyone knows that. And we're talking about long-term capital gains, so stocks that you hold on to for at least a year. Um, and he highlights something that is really interesting in that if you are under a certain Tax uh, income threshold, your qualified dividends and long-term capital gains are tax-free. You don't pay any taxes on that. Now he has the number from two th- last year, 2018. The number for this year, 2019, is up to 39,375. If you're single, if you're married filing jointly, it's up to 78,750. And part of the answer to his question, that is your taxable income. So you start with your gross income and you take away your um, your deductions and all that type of stuff. So you could actually be make you could be a married couple earning almost $100,000 and still have some of your long-term capital gains and qualified dividends be tax-free. Now, what happens is let in his situation, right? He had $37,000, but then he had $3,000 in dividends and gains. That part up until that threshold will be tax-free. The part over that threshold you will be taxed on it, but not the whole part just the part that is beyond the threshold. So I think anyone who is in this situation, who's in a lower tax bracket in this year, it makes sense actually to even just sell the stocks up until the point where you're not paying any tax gains, and then you can buy them back immediately and reset your cost basis. It sounds a little bit like tax loss selling, but this is actually tax gain selling in a way. Tax loss saying you can't buy the same thing back in 30 days, not true with tax gain selling. Sell it, Recognize just enough capital gains so that it's tax-free, buy it again immediately, and you reset your cost basis. This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by Datasite One from Merrill Corporation, the market-leading due diligence app for the entire M&A lifecycle, helping companies worldwide close more deals faster. New projects can be set up in minutes with Datasite One's simple, intuitive uploading and document organization, drag-and-drop controls to organize your data room, and powerful tools for managing folder and document access permissions. Datasite One also offers robust OCR search, which delivers results 10 times faster and finds words within a document, not just at file, folder, and doc title levels. With Dashboard and Visual Analytics, you'll have quick access to deal KPIs through visual dashboards, enabling you to stay ahead of your deal. Filters allow drill downs into documents, users, and roles, and even Q&A activity to spot opportunities and obstacles. To learn more about Datasite One and sign up for a free demo, go to merylcorp.com fool. Speak to an expert at Datasite One like our team did and learn how to accelerate your due diligence. Again, that's M-E-R-R-I-L-L-C-O-R-P dot com slash fool to sign up for a free personalized demo. Thanks, Merrill Corp, for your support. Out of college, money spent. See no future, pay no rent. All the money's gone, nowhere to go. Our next question comes from Colin. I'm 26 years old, and my credit history is comprised solely of student loans and a car loan. No missed payments for either, resulting in a fairly decent credit score of 730, apparently held back mostly by my age. Would my credit be improved by signing up for a credit card? How about security when shopping online? And if so, how do you recommend shopping around for a credit card? Colin, I love that you asked this question, and I love the framing of the question, that it wasn't, 
I've got some extra stuff that I want to buy, so should I get a credit card so I can buy it? <laughs> You're asking it the right way. You're looking to improve your credit. Um, so let's talk what, about what goes into that credit score, first of all, because there's, there's a couple big factors. The biggest piece of it is your payment history. So by continuing to pay on your student loans and your car loan, no missed payments, don't be late, uh, that's a huge part of it. The next really big chunk is what's called a utilization ratio. Um, this is, I think, poorly understood, but it's basically how much of the credit that has been extended to you is being used. It's a very big deal. Um, the next is going to be how often are you checking your credit, how many hard inquiries mm -hmm. are against the credit, so how many times are you letting people ping it and see if you're credit worthy. And then the final thing is going to be um, your length of accounts and how long they've been open, so that account history. And then also the credit mix. Um, so they look at you know how many different types of accounts do you have? Is it just a student loan? Is it all credit cards? So uh, in this case, I actually think that it is going to improve your credit. Maybe not immediately in the short term, but I, I would have you get a credit card, uh, and I would be very careful with it. So a couple things to note. Number one, on that utilization ratio, the number they really look for there is 30% or less. So if you get a credit card and they give you a, a, like a $1,000 limit, you really don't ever want to have the balance sitting at more than 300 bucks on that credit card. Um, so you know, being very, very responsible with the amount that they give you I think is going to improve your credit. Uh, number two, you're going to start the clock on that credit history so that you've got a longer length of time that you leave that card open. That's going to help. Um, and again, it's going to help the credit mix a little bit. Where you may take a hit in the short term is because they're checking it, so you're going to have a new hard inquiry on your report. Um, that's not a big deal. Again, I think over a couple months' time, you're going to see it tick up from a 730 to maybe even higher than that, uh, assuming that you're using the credit very responsibly. Pay it off every month. Don't pay interest. Um, so I think, I think it is a good idea for you. Um, there's a, a bunch of resources online. The Motley Fool actually now has one called The Ascent. Uh, if you go to fool.com and under the Personal Finance tab, there's a bunch of resources on rated credit cards. I would probably look for one with no fee. You're not necessarily in the points game yet. Um, if you ultimately start spending more and traveling and all that stuff, you might want to get into a points or a rewards credit card where you're going to probably have an annual fee in exchange for some nice perks. Um, but for your first one, I would definitely go no annual fee, try and get a low interest rate, but but then you know don't don't carry any interest bearing balances on it. Yeah, he also asked about security buying things uh, yeah. online, and uh, you know in the handful of times that. We've had problems, including maybe two months ago, some seven hundred and something dollars were charged to start a credit card from Nordstrom's. Um, the credit card companies basically eaten that cost, so you just have to stay on top of it and keep an eye out for it. Yeah, it, as long as you open up a case with like a fraud department, what they will normally do very quickly is shut down the card, send you a new one. Um, so most of these companies now, I don't know of any that don't, are not going to hold you responsible. That still doesn't mean to be crazy with your your data. You know, don't like put it out there on your Facebook posts and stuff. <laughs> um, don't don't put a photo of your credit card number anywhere on your social media. I've seen that. Actually. <laughs> Look, so, I got a new credit card. Yeah, like why do people keep asking <laughs> for the three digits selfie. on the back? Uh, yeah, so so be, be be as responsible as you can. Try and work with um, merchants that that are reputable. You know, look for the uh, security little lockbox thing on your web browser if you're going to put your number in. But uh, most of the time, you're not going to have a lot of real liability there. Next question comes from Elise. <laughs> 
Can you please explain the logistics of how a 401k can be both a traditional and a Roth? IRAs can only be one or the other. So how does the 401k work? Is it true that all your contributions go in one place and are just broken out on paper? Or can you invest in some things with your pre-tax money and other things with Roth money? And what happens when you leave the company and roll over the money to an IRA? Well, Elise is absolutely right in that when it comes to the 401k, it's not an all-or-nothing decision. You can make both traditional and Roth contributions. Furthermore, even if you just choose to make Roth contributions, but you get a match, the match is going to be traditional. And when you take that money out in retirement, you're going to be taxed on it. Um, So, how does a 401k account for these two buckets of money? Well, the answer is it depends on your plan. Um, So, you should contact the administrator of your plan directly. However, for most, if not all, plans, it's handled proportionately. And to use Elise's words, it's really broken out on paper. So you don't have two separate accounts or two separate, um, like a Roth account and a traditional. It's really just an accounting thing that's just coded in the account. Um, So let's consider an example. Let's say you contribute $1,000 a month to your 401k, and you decide that 50% should be traditional, 50% should be Roth, and furthermore, you're choosing to put half of it in a stock fund and half in a bond fund. You usually cannot say, I want my Roth money to go into the stock fund and the traditional to go into the bond. It's going to be split proportionately. Furthermore, when you pull up your account online, chances are it's not going to break it out right there. It's just going to show you your overall balance. And you're going to have to dig a little bit to find out exactly what is Roth and what is traditional. Now, so just as an example for the full 401k, to figure out how your account breaks down between Roth and traditional, you have to click on View Account, then Account Activity, then Search Options, and then Source, as in what's the source of the funds. So you do have to do some digging. Um, But it really is just on paper. They don't have two separate accounts. Now, when you leave the company and you roll it over, then you can separate it. You can roll the Roth portion into a Roth IRA and the traditional portion into a traditional IRA. And that's in fact, that's the way you have to do it. Um, and that's one of the benefits of it, because then you can let the Roth keep growing for as long as you want, because there are no RMDs, required minimum distributions, on a Roth. All right, next question comes from Dave. I consider myself pretty well informed when it comes to retirement savings, so it surprised me to learn there was another retirement savings vehicle that I was unaware of, the Simplified Employee Pension. Can you talk about why someone would open one? While doing research, I also learned about the Simple IRA, Savings Incentive Match Plan for Employees. Is this something I'm eligible for as someone who is self-employed? My business is classified as an LLC. So first of all, I appreciate that Dave sent the name uh, of the acronym because I so often just see the acronym of a simple or a SEP, which is typically the, the simplified employee pension. I was going to have to look up what the actual full name <laughs> of it was again, uh, just to talk about it. So thanks, Dave. Um, so yes, I, there as a self-employed person, there are a number of plan options, um, and I'm going to try and give you some guidance on on how to think about it. But I don't know that I've got enough information about your business and and what you're trying to accomplish um, to give you a perfect answer. Um, so the SEP IRA is really attractive in a number of ways because number one, they are super easy to administer. They're very low cost to set up, so there's not a big hurdle. It's pretty much the same as opening a brokerage account. I think it's literally a one a one page form. Yeah, yeah, we 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 work with them, like we we support them. There's like two extra questions from a typical IRA, which is like, what's the name of the company? Yeah. Um, what you're allowed to put in there as a self-employed person is up to 20% of your earnings, or if it's if you're paying it as compensation to employees, uh, it's 25% of the employees' comp. So um, 
that is a very easy plan to use. Now, if somebody has been with you as an employee for three out of the last five years, you have to make a contribution for them as well. Uh, so for an employer that has a bunch of people working for them, if you're trying to contribute 20% of your compensation to the plan, that can get fairly expensive pretty quickly. So these tend to work really well for small companies where it might just be you. If you don't have any employees, they're a great option, really easy to use. Or if you're also looking to make a nice contribution for your employees as a retention benefit or, or whatever you're going to do there. The simple is going to be also fairly easy to administer. They're set up for companies uh, with less than 100 employees. You can also put in a lower amount of money than the SEP. So on the SEP IRA, you can put in up to $56,000 for the year. On the simple, you're going to be capped at $13,000 for 2019. So you've got very different contribution limits there. And the amount that you have to put in for the employees on the simple is going to be a lot less. It's either 2% that you're immediately doing for them, whether they put in anything or not, or it's a dollar-for-dollar match up to 3%. So you've got different kind of levels that you're going to have to contribute. Now, if your head just started spinning as I went through those numbers, um, what you really need to step back and think of is, what am I trying to do? How much income am I trying to save? How many employees do I have? And am I willing to or able to do something for them as well? Um, and then if you're working with an accountant or somebody for your business already, I would ask them this question because they're going to know how profitable your business is or how much you're maybe trying to put away, and they should be able to guide you into a correct plan. Um, the other one that comes up with us when we're talking to clients is the solo 401k. Um, you can do a 401k that's just for a single person entity. Um, there are reasons that that could be attractive. Um, so, for example, if you've got a business that you make $20,000 a year on the side, as a 401k, you can do a salary deferral of up to $19,000 this year with the catch-up. You could literally defer almost all of your income for the year and put all of that money away, whereas in a SEP IRA, you'd only be able to do the 20%. So, the amount that you're trying to save versus like how much you want to maximize those savings, it gets really hairy pretty quick, but somebody that has an intimate knowledge of your business, how much it's earning... I think is going to be best positioned to give you a really good answer there. Our next question comes from Ben. We've all heard a lot of concerns about the next big recession bubble or drawdown, so a lot of people are thinking and preparing for this event. Given that previous bubbles, such as the internet bubble and the financial bubble, were caused by irrational, unprepared exuberance, what might the next recession or bubble be? Would it mean a faster, sharper drop, or might it be not much of a drop at all? Sounds like Ben's been reading some Robert Schiller. <laughs> oh, has he been an unawfulizer well, lately? I mean, he he wrote irrational exuberance. Oh, right, right. I, I I was just relating to the the use of that exuberance word. Right, right, right. Uh, so the answer, Ben, is nobody knows. Nobody knows. And but I do want to address the question because it is coming up more because as we talked about in a previous episode, we are now in the longest economic expansion in U.S. history, or at least since the 1850s when they started marking these things. So. Leading up to it, people were like, oh boy, this is getting pretty long in the tooth. Maybe I should play it more defensively. Well, it probably didn't work out so well because this year has been pretty good. Um, so, yeah, how many years have you been getting asked this question? Ten. <laughs> Since right. the first day we started doing this podcast. I mean, that, that, oh, five years. Yeah, well, no, I mean, I was going to say that, that's the possible. tough part about this question. You could say, well, looks a little. Looks a little long in the tooth. Things look a little pricey, and you could have said that since like 2012, well, and, and you'd still been, be right. And I have probably since 2014, 2015. 
referencing this Schiller CAPE, the 10-year cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio. We looked very high. So for years, people like me and many others have been saying, well, the stock market is high. And historically, when the stock market's high, future returns are not quite so good. But it just hasn't come true, which is why one thing we have always said, you're just never going to be able to time these things. I do find it interesting to read about them. So, for example, um, there's a company called Osterweiss Capital Management, and they came out with their July report. And they basically suggested maybe the, the, the economic cycle is somewhat dead, because it used to be caused by inventory. So, what would happen is, uh, during the beginning of a recovery, um, people would have some money, they'd go out and buy stuff, actual stuff. And the companies would be like, wow, people want more demand, we've got to hire more people, we've got to make a lot of stuff. And, and it would be this cycle until eventually they had too much inventory, people weren't buying all of it, so companies had to start laying people off and dropping prices. prices. Right. But these days, so much of our economy isn't inventory. Service. It's services, it's data, it's the internet. Which and technology itself is very deflationary, so it keeps prices down, which is another thing that can cause a recession. Too much inflation. So, do I really believe that the economic cycle is dead? Probably not. I do think things are different, and I do think that there's no way to predict how any of this is going to happen. Um, you know, there is another interesting article by Mark Holbert um, in CBS Market Watch, who, who said, which basically showed some data that said, what we do know is that. The severity of a bear market is not historically related to the length of the bull market beforehand, but the severity is somewhat related to the valuation of the market before the market tanked, which would suggest that when the bear market eventually does come, it'll probably be more severe than average. But as was discussed earlier in the show, history just is a very imperfect guide, so we don't know. Bottom line is, the same stuff we always say, have enough cash on the side, and also, the, the big Thing that I think people need to think about when it comes to recessions, it's not just your portfolio. Your job is threatened. So to be always be focusing on making sure that your ca- human capital is doing well, your job is secure, you have a backup plan if something happens. Do you? I don't remember the internet bubble, not because I'm so young, but uh, yeah, maybe because I'm so young. Uh, do you remember in the during the internet bubble that you were like, oh, this is a bubble. This can't last. Because I remember during the housing bubble being like, this is unsustainable. Housing prices are bananas. This is not going to last. But no. I wasn't working at The Motley Fool back then, so I don't... Right. So, I was. You know, I started in 99. Yeah. Rick was here, too. And I, I would definitely say that I personally bought into the whole, this, is, this time is different. We are living in a new world. The internet is such a disruptive mm. technology. Uh, investing has become more democratized. All these things I certainly bought into. And, and, and talking about like things being different, you know, up, if you had said to me or any of us really at the Motley Fool in 1999, oh by the way, the next decade will be the worst decade for stocks since the 20s, including the Great Depression, we would all laughed at you. Yeah. But that's what happened from 1999 to 2008. The S&P 500 for the first time ever lost money every year on an annualized basis. So things can be different than the past. We were right about everything being different because of the internet. We were just a decade off. <laughs> now it's different. Well, now and, and it really has changed everything, right? It's changed how we do business, how we do banking, how we get information, but it didn't necessarily change that valuations can go absolutely bonkers and and be sustainable. Yeah, yeah. we've talked about in the previous show that uh, Australia hasn't had a recession since I think it's 1990. Hmm. Can we do something like that too? I don't know. I don't think it's likely, but 
I sort of hope I, I, w- I wouldn't mind having. I think couple. we need to go do some on the ground research in Australia to, to I think really that is, find out I think on location. That is a great idea. Let's get a boondoggle set up. Can we make this happen? Let's take this show on the road. All right. Last question is from Elton. I have a question about something you discussed on your May 28th episode. You remember that, right, Ross? That there is an exception <laughs> regarding moving employer stock into an IRA. Can you tell us more about that? This is the first time I've heard of it. And if true, it sounds like it could be a way to reap some tax benefit by not having to sell appreciated stocks. Well, so so my first question, just going back to that actual episode, was that a discussion about net unrealized appreciation? Because that's what it sounds like the question is relating to. Yes. Okay. I don't remember exactly. Okay. <laughs> All right. I'm, I'm going to assume that's what the question is about, Elton, because I, I think I think you're you're dancing around that. So net unrealized appreciation is essentially a strategy if you've got employer stock in your 401k to move that employer stock out as part of a rollover. But you you kind of deal with it different in terms of your taxation. So for the purposes of the discussion, let's pretend that all of the money's pre-tax. Let's ignore Roth 401k entirely. Okay, so if you've got a stock in there, and let's say over the years you've put fifty thousand dollars into that stock, and it's now worth two hundred and fifty thousand dollars of value inside your 401k. If you roll all of that money into an IRA. It's going to move over. There's no taxes as part of that. But what does happen is they liquidate everything. They take you to cash, they send you a check, and you put that check in your IRA. Um, At some point, when you start taking withdrawals, either because you need the money or because there's a required minimum distribution, all of that money that comes out is going to be taxable as income to you. NUA is a little bit different. At the point of the rollover, if you said, hey, listen, I want to take my company stock for X, Y, and Z, I'm going to pay ordinary income taxes on the $50,000 of basis. And then I'm going to move that entire piece of stock into a brokerage account. It's like you bought the stock for $50,000 and just held on to it. So it's still worth 250 and the $200,000 of unrealized gains are ultimately going to be treated as long-term capital gains. So the difference there is you're going to accelerate some income in the year that you do this, because you do have to pay taxes on the basis when you do it, and then you're ultimately going to treat that stock as a long-term holding in a brokerage account. So you're not moving the stock to an IRA, you're moving it to a taxable brokerage account, or just an ordinary brokerage account. But if you have highly appreciated employer stock in your 401k plan, this is a pretty powerful strategy that could potentially save you a lot in taxes, because paying income taxes on Two hundred and fifty thousand dollars is very different than paying income taxes on fifty grand and capital gains on the other two hundred. So I think that's what you're talking about. If you've got highly appreciated employer stock, that's a huge opportunity. Make sure you don't roll over that four hundred one k without talking to somebody or going through it with a financial professional to see if that makes sense for you. Because um, I think that's a big deal. And once you lose the opportunity, there's no going back. Yeah, I would second that too. Because not every company stock plan is the same. There are different versions of it, different rules, and you definitely want to talk to an expert before you make a major decision about such a big chunk of change. All right. Well, that's it for the questions. Ross, thank you so much for joining us. I love being here. Thank you guys for having me. Oh, good. We'll have you back again and get more of your hot takes on elk meat, <laughs> which most of the audience didn't get. Reindeer we meat. Talking. Sorry, reindeer meat. Not I elk. was in northern Finland. It, it tastes like beef. Oh really? Yeah, it, Not gaming. That is that is yeah. the home country, right? It is. Well, yeah, for for my mom's side, yes. Got it. Okay. 
All right, so yeah, next time it's just going to be an all wild game related <laughs> mailbag. How's try that sound? A different piece of meat in between each question. Can't wait. I, different kinds of jerky. Let's make it happen. All you need to do to get me here is add food. <laughs> all right, let's head to the other part of the mailbag, where people, the post mail where people say stuff rather than ask stuff. Uh, first off, though, I want to thank the people who left some reviews on iTunes. Did I ask recently for this? Because we got four new reviews on iTunes. Well, that's very nice. Isn't that ni- oh, they said the nicest things. You should go read. I'm not going to read them all, but I do want to say thanks to Iowish and Bruce and AV44308 and Isaac for leaving some really kind reviews. It warms our hearts. It certainly does. And for say- and for not saying that my voice is obnoxious. <laughs> or mine. <laughs> too nasally, too mumbly, whatever. Stop yeah. the ums. <laughs> Whatever. All right, let's head to the postcards. Uh, first off, we have Michael, who um, delivered his postcards via the David Gardner delivery service. What? So David was in China, and Michael gave him a postcard for each of us from Tianjin. Dang, these yeah. are cool. Yeah, they're like uh, slides, almost. They you are. can look through it yeah. and see a boat going down a river or something. Nice. Anyway, yeah. uh, we also have uh, Becky from Phoenix sent a card from Cassis. France. I don't know. She's taking in the lavender and sunflowers and vino. Hmm. Lou sent a card from Baltimore, but not the Baltimore you're thinking. Did you know there was a Baltimore in Ireland? I didn't know Look that. Look how cute that is. That Almost cute. as cute as our Baltimore. That's right. Uh, we also have Chuck sent a card from Fountain Hills, Arizona, which he says is the epitome of retirement community. So maybe we have another option outside the villages to check out <laughs> in our retired age. Wow. Uh, 50 billion cent is back on the road. Stocks! And sent in a card from Johnson Space Center, and um, where he was down there um, rebuilding homes that were destroyed by a hurricane. Shoots sent a card from Mount Rushmore. Very cool. Wow, look at that. He says he'd put us on the Mount Rushmore of financial podcasts. Oh, I know. Nice. And he also sent a card from Pompey's Pillar in Montana. PT sent a card from Guam. I think it's our first. Oh, that's pretty. Isn't that wow. pretty? And also sent a card from Honolulu, where uh, he perhaps rhetorically asked, what's the deal with timeshares? Socks! <laughs> you put socks on instead of stocks. Uh, David sent a card from Poland and also yelled, Stocks! <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, Krakow. Oh, Krakow is such a pretty town. Is it? Yeah. I've never been to Poland. Yeah. Uh, so a guy named, again, Rob Brokump, I think is his name, <laughs> sent a couple cards from Alaska. One's from Mount Rainier, actually. Oh, Thank sorry, you very one's much. One's from Mount Rainier. And then one is from Alaska. Uh, one's for me and one's for you, by the way, Rick. And our face is on the stamp because this was <laughs> delivered via the front desk woman. That's right. Why spend money on a stamp when I could just drop it off? Stamps! <laughs> All right, next one. We have um, Christian. Remember him? He works just down the street. Oh, at yeah. the PTO office. He sent us a card from Banff where he just ran the, a marathon in Banff. Can you imagine? Oh, and that's gorgeous. Isn't that, that gorgeous? Yeah, I need to go oh. there sometime. Uh, you're going to recognize this face. This is Don, and he sent us a picture from Custer State Park with some goats. You remember oh. Don. Oh, yeah. Always wearing his Molly Fool shirt. Yeah. With a goat. With a goat. Uh, and then we also have Eddie and Tierra. You remember Eddie? Um, they are from Hawaii. They are doing their 50 state tour, and so they sent cards from Death Valley, 
um, and Arizona and Joshua Tree. And also, Eddie, if you're listening, and you probably are at some point, our address is 2000 Duke Street, not 200 Duke oh, Street. Oh, did I get so some, so No, they made it here, but um, someone keeps furiously writing 2000 on it instead of 200. So, Eddie, 2000. And for the rest of you, for that matter, um, please send us a postcard. So we love it. 2000 Duke Street. Alexandria, Virginia, 22314. And feel free to send us cards from boring places, because those are the states that we need to like tick off the list. Yeah. So, do we have an official list? Yeah, I keep a list. Oh, do you? Okay. Not well, but I, I do. <laughs> the same way you keep score when we have games? Yeah, maybe a little better. <laughs> uh, all right, so that's the show. It's edited globetrottingly for, by Rick Engdahl, who's about to head off to San Diego, too. So, And he just got back from Boulder. All over the map. You are all over the map and not sending postcards. Hmm. That's okay. I'm not. I don't think I'm going to send you guys one from Yellowstone. Why not? Oh, Love I don't Yellowstone. Care. All right, fine. I'll send you guys postcards from Yellowstone. I'll send one from San Diego if you send one from Yellowstone. Deal. All right. Again, our email is answers at fool.com and our address is 2000 Duke Street, Alexandria, Virginia, 22314. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Mm-hmm.